Hey, this is Aaron, one of the pastors here at Sunset Community Church. The following audio is part one of a three-part series from a seminar our church hosted in October of 2022. J.T. Thomas of the nonprofit organization Civil Righteousness shared with us how to understand justice and racism in our modern culture from a deeply biblical perspective, as well as how the church can and should engage these issues with the good news of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. JT is a very engaging and compelling teacher and speaker, and there's so much great content to take in and process. So take notes, have conversations with one another, and earnestly pray on how God would have us, the church, embody the justice, righteousness, and love of Jesus in our city. Well, good morning, everyone. It is truly an honor and a privilege to be with you this morning. We are going to go on a journey together uh, for the next several hours that we have. And um, I uh, am just honored and thankful. I think we need to, uh, for those of you who belong to this church and are are being led by this pastor, uh, I can't understate what a massive and courageous thing uh, it is for you to be willing to host this conversation in the context of the times in which we live. So um, let's just praise God for his willingness uh, to do this. And I want to thank you just from the start. I want to thank you for coming. Uh, My guess is there are two sets of people in this room. It's one set that hears or sees the title race and the church. Is that what it was named? Uh, yeah. There's, there's one group that goes, oh, great, finally. <laughs> Saturday, I'm canceling everything. I'm there. And then, then there's another group that goes, oh, no, not again. <laughs> and so I won't make you raise your hand and, and, and tell me which, which category you're in. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, God has appointed this moment in this morning, in this time, in your presence. Uh, Everyone who needs to be in this room is in this room. Okay, maybe not everyone. (laughs) But you definitely needed to be here. And so because of that, you're here. And uh, I believe that the Lord will, will bless your obedience. I'm going to pray one more time, and then I'm just going to jump into my story. So, Father, we just acknowledge that we can do nothing apart from you. All that is good and perfect comes from you. We know that it is the foolishness of preaching, the foolish things of this world that you use to confound the the wise, and that any revelation, any, any understanding that we gain in this time, it comes by the power of your spirit, Holy Spirit, the teacher, the comforter, the counselor, the one who guides us into all truth. So I'm asking, Holy Spirit, would you rest upon us and unlock mysteries, reveal the Father's heart, reveal Jesus to us, Holy Spirit. I'm asking that there would be, as the Apostle Paul prayed, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of your will. So we trust you for the miracle of understanding to manifest in our midst this morning. 
Now give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Anoint our heads and our hearts that we might have anointed hands and beautiful feet. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going on a journey, and uh, I will warn you, I am a preacher. So <laughs> that means several things, but thankfully for you, um, I, God did not let me sleep last night, <laughs> which basically means that I'm, I'm fully poured out right now, which, so you're getting the low-key version of me. But just know the high key version of me is really loud. Okay, that means when I'm in preacher mode, you might get a and God said, you know, that kind of thing. So but I'm not functioning on that octave today. So uh, I'm in conversational teaching mode this morning. And uh, just so you know, I, I, I was raised in the deep south. Um, you might not consider North Carolina deep south. Some people, because it says north, they don't understand. That's still the south. That's still the deep south. Uh, but uh, was raised, born and raised in North Carolina. So oftentimes, especially when I'm in preach mode, my, my language gets a little bit slower. And you begin to catch some of that southern drawl, you know. Uh, so that's where that comes from. Uh, but uh, just to show you a little bit about my family. Um, and before we even get into that, just to let you know kind of where we're going today, we're going to go, hopefully, by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit will move us through at least six uh, areas of understanding. We're going to define justice. We're going to define righteousness. We're going to explore what racism is and isn't. We are going to talk about the ministry of reconciliation, hopefully grow and come into a greater understanding of what it means to be a new man, a new creation in Christ, a new family. And then finally, how do we come to, first of all, where, what is the table of the Lord? Where are the tables that we should be at as believers? What tables should we build and how do we stay at the table? And so hopefully um, by the time we walk out of here this, this afternoon, um, we will have moved through these realities. So um, I'm going to figure out which arrow goes left and right. <laughs> okay, there we go. Um, so <clears throat> this is my hometown. Nice uh, Blue Ridge Mountains. You can kind of see in the picture the, the, the fog kind of makes the mountains look blue. So it's called the Blue Ridge, which is part of what, if you were reading about it, you hear people say the Appalachian Mountains. But if you hear somebody say Appalachian, you know they're not from there because we say Appalachian. <laughs> uh, so I grew up in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in western North Carolina in the Appalachian Mountains. And, uh, you know, it's funny because we are talking about issues of race and class and culture. So I'll just dive right in. I talk about this all the time. So sometimes I say stuff. And when I say it, people are like, oh, I can't believe he said that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. A lot of people aren't used to hearing that kind of stuff. So so we're just just so you're getting oriented. I, I, I make fun of lots of things and talk about about some of the hard things. So we, we are going to go into some of the hard things. Just prepare yourself. But there's grace. Everybody say grace. grace. 
Say grace. grace. Now, like I said, I'm a black preacher. That means in the black church, we're used to people talking back to you. So if I ask you a question, it's not like rhetorical. It's like, no, I need you. I need an answer from you. You know what I mean? So we're going to do it a lot. We'll, we'll do some talking back and talking to each other. That's the other thing black preachers do. Look at your neighbor and say neighbor. 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 Today, Today. we're going to talk. Now look at your other neighbor and say, neighbor, neighbor. I, got I got something to say. Now put your hands together and give God a hand clap of praise. If you've never been to a black church, you have now. So um, all that to say, uh, I grew up in the foothills of North Carolina. And one misconception about black people is that we all live in the hood, that we're all from the hood. You know, that's, that's one of the preeminent kind of predominant images and stereotypes that gets kind of put out about black people. And that country or being Southern or even having a Southern draw is not like a black thing when in fact, technically, <laughs> if you think about where most African-Americans entered this country and how they entered and where they migrated two cities from, it was from the South. Does that make sense? So this and then some of the surrounding areas, the fields, is actually more of the context for the origins of particularly not just, you know, African-Americans, that's, a, that's a, uh, a phrase that encompasses a great uh, diversity of people in this nation today. There are Africans who moved to America and have citizenship. They're African-Americans. There are immigrants who are the offspring of, uh, who were born here, who are African-Americans. And then there is the Negro American. The Negro American is uniquely the, uh, the African-American who was brought to America through chattel slavery, was uh, raised in proximity to the deep uh, Negro South. Negro is a word that has been retired in modern terms. I'm not sure it should have been. There's different reasons for that. But it is distinct because a lot of what I will reference today in terms of my experience is the Negro American journey um, because that's the context that I come from. Does that make sense? And that is the context with which the backdrop of America's racial discussion is largely centered. And so <clears throat> I show you this because uh, in those foothills, in those mountains, there was a group of uh, indigenous peoples, the, the Cherokee, the Eastern band of the Cherokee, Indian, uh, of the Cherokee Indians. Um, they bought 50, they bought, not not were granted, they, they purchased with their own money 57,000 acres of that, of mountain, in Western North Carolina that was held in federal trust in 1819. Well, the Appalachians, and the, Blue, the Smoky, the Great Smoky Mountains go down through Tennessee, down to Georgia, and the Fed, U.S. federal government wanted that land. They wanted gold. They felt like there was gold in Georgia. And the best way to get to the gold was to remove the land rights. 
But they couldn't just strip the rights. They needed to strip the best way to not have to deal with people who felt like they were entitled to the land because they owned it was the best. The best thing to do was to remove the people. So that started what became what is now known in history as the Trail of Tears, where the Cherokees uh, were moved from this mountain range to Oklahoma. Well, there was about a thousand Cherokee who stayed. They actually either, you know, kind of diverted or they went on the trip. Walked, they walked from North Carolina to Oklahoma, which if I don't know all the mileage on that, I should. But uh, the truth is, if you were to Google map that, that's a long walk. You've never walked that long. Um, over 50 percent of the tribe died on the Trail of Tears. Some actually turned around after they got to Oklahoma and they said, okay, we got here. And then they turned around and they walked back. Others hid in cliffs and caves in these mountains. And in fact, there's an old movie that's a great movie from the uh, late 90s, mid, mid 90s, called Last of the Mohicans that was filmed right here. And in fact, what I used to do for fun as a kid, because there was nothing to do, it was just the country and the, and the mountains, is we would go and try to find, we'd find and, and explore these ancient Native American caves. Not ancient, but, well, I guess some of them are ancient. Uh, we would explore them and, and hope that we would come across a hibernating black bear or something like that. <laughs> I mean, we saw, we, we black, there were black bears everywhere, but, uh, <laughs> you know, we'd see, oh, is that bear asleep? Let's see how close we can get, you know. Um, if it'll wake up, you know, um, kids, you know, there's a God in heaven when you think of the crazy stuff you did as a kid, man. I mean, like seriously. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> so this man sitting in the chair, looking like a boss <laughs> is my great, great grandfather, Emmanuel Waddell. And he is a full blooded, Cherokee Indian. Now the Cherokee, the Eastern band of the Cherokee were wealthy. They bought 57,000 acres of land. And even a thousand of those Cherokee hid in the caves, hid their wealth, whatever, whatever the, the currency was, and somehow were able to emerge out of the trail of tears and still build a life. Well, my grandfather, great great great-great-grandfather Emmanuel Waddell um, was able to pull his money together with a freed slave named Simpson Foster. And they bought 300 acres of land, cleared the land, worked the land, built houses. The first thing they built was a church. And they essentially established a town in the foothills of South Carolina, just across the North Carolina border. And they named it Little Africa. And he married... Uh, a freed slave named Sarah, who's sitting, I mean Viola, sorry, that's Viola. And uh, long story short, <clears throat> that's my mother's dad's father. So, no, he's not my great-great, sorry, that's my great-grandfather. My mother's dad's father. Um, now, uh, that's on my mother's dad's side. On my mother's mother's side, my grandmother, Lucille, her mother is this lady right here. 
sweet Mary Kate Wayman. Mary Kate was also half Cherokee Indian. Now, I always thought it was just because the Cherokee and the African had been oppressed. But I found out about three years ago that her father owned slaves. And so she was the product of a slave master who then, uh, no, her grandfather owned slaves, and her mother was the product of a slaveholder who then impregnated the African lady and produced her mother, who then married a mixed half Cherokee, half black man named John Devine, uh, or man, uh, sorry, I'm, I didn't sleep last night. <laughs> I'm gonna tie this together. So anyway, Mary Kate Wayman, my great grandmother, who I knew in my lifetime, and I'm 40 years, 41, just turned 41. So here's what you have to understand. She was raised by her, her mother, who was raised by slaves. And I was held in her arms and babysat by her. And I'm 41. So when we think about how long ago slavery was, like when you read about it, you're like, oh man, that was hundreds of years ago. If I, as a 41-year-old man, could have a relationship with a person who had relationship and was deeply formed by people who were slaves. That tells you that our, we, here in the West we have amnesia, right? We can't remember what happened last week. But this concept that somehow we're so far removed is, is not true. So I say this to say that she brought her kind of native, the Cherokee were a, are a monotheistic people, meaning that uh, though there, is, there are Christians today, many, most of the Cherokee are Christians today, even before Christendom, they had a theology or, an, or a, a, a theodicy about who and what and why the world exists, and they had the gospel. They just didn't call they didn't use the language that we use, but they believed in one God in three persons. They believed in a Messiah. They had the story of the great creator and the earth, and, but they were very much in touch with nature and with the land and with the supernatural. And so uh, my great grandmother was raised um, to love Jesus as a Methodist, but she also could hear and see and feel just like the tribal realities, you know. And then, so there's this African spiritism, so to speak, this indigenous spiritism and the gospel that all kind of commingled into this unique wiring. Um, and so when she had 11 kids, after she had, I think, about six or seven kids in, she began to ask the Lord, 
Lord, if you can use a mother, will you use me? She prayed, Lord, if you can use a mother, use me. Now, I know I, I, I preach in a lot of different church traditions and, you know, man, you start talking about female preachers or whatever and you get all the, in some circles, people ruffled up. All I know is the black church wouldn't exist today if it hadn't been God using a mother. So she said, God, can you use a mother? If you can use a mother, use me. And he said, okay. And so he anointed her and she began to travel to sharecropper fields, former slave plantations, and preach the gospel. She would do tent revival meetings and everywhere where she did tent revival meetings, people got saved. And uh, so this article was written about her because uh, she was a preacher her parents were technically preachers. And it says family preaching tradition is carried on by 90 year old Mary Wayman. In this article, she says preaching is kind of like a family of doctors. It might skip a generation, but it always goes to the next. <laughs> Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because I'm standing on some very deep and broad shoulders of generations that have gone before me. This was her husband, John Devine Wayman, and he worked on, uh, on the railroads. He was a musician and a singer. They say he could whist whistle in three-part harmony. harmony. Um, one of the first churches that sprang up after one of those little tent revival meetings in the 1930s, when my great-grandmother was preaching, um, was this church, Russell Tabernacle, and in the corner, it still stands today, in uh, the backwoods of South Carolina, North Carolina. But in the corner, it has her and my grandfather's name in a cornerstone, and there are several churches like that in the backwoods of North Carolina. What was amazing, though, is in those tent revival meetings, uh, in the black church tradition, when you catch the Spirit, or catch what we call the Holy Ghost, like if you have if you have a witness, one of the things even today, like if I say something that that makes sense to you, what will happen is the preacher is preaching and he he says something that that like is really bearing witness with you. And you stand up. Yes, sir. You stand up. You know, that's what happens in the in the church. They stand up and they, they talk back to you. Well, well, then what happens when you catch the spirit, so to speak, or catch the Holy Ghost? is people will start dancing, and the music changes, like it's a syncopate. I was a drummer. Um, and, so, and so the church, everybody's dancing, you know, in the spirit. So in these tent revival meetings, that rhythm, you know, would come out. Now, one of my, I'm, I'm, get, I'm going somewhere with this. Look, I got two hours, right? So, what you have to understand is that God released supernatural grace and gifting on the enslaved persons. One of the great redemptive gifts that we, that we walked out of slavery with was the technology of sound and song. 
Like we, God actually downloaded the song of the Lord into the African diaspora during slavery. We, we would cry out to God in song and turn our labor into not only labor on the earth, but labor in heaven through prayer. So, so the foundation of pop culture music today and almost all forms of music are rooted in this expression and this experience, which started in the fields. You're plowing the field. Oh, Lord, if not me, one day let my children be free. What, what they found was that as they were hitting the ground, they would get more work done in syncopation. So it'd be like, boom, slide. And you see like 10 guys hitting. Oh, Lord. One was leading and then they'd They'd respond, if not me, one day let my children be free. Oh, Lord, one day let my children be free. Oh, Lord, one day let my Do you know that's prayer? That wasn't just a good song. The, the, the quartermaster on the horse is like, ah, oh, these stupid niggas, I wish they'd just be quiet and do the work. But God had postured them with this uncanny ability to connect with him and intercede for generations to come. And the, the, it was hidden, hidden encrypted technology to the, even communicate with one another. I'm going down by the river soon as the sun goes down. Going down by the river soon as the sun goes down. Quartermaster sitting there listening to the whole thing and have no clue. <laughs> Meet me by the corner of the barn. <laughs> Clueless, you know what I mean? You had to have a spirit of revelation to understand what he's talking about. So all that then translated, it translated into this heightened supernatural, uh, 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 ex this ecstatic expression of worship. When after 200 years of praying for freedom, freedom comes. So then when we would gather to worship, our, our, our meetings, our camp meetings were, ah, you know, just filled with, with energy and vitality and a heightened reality of the, the Spirit of God. So, I'm going somewhere with this. You with me? We on a journey yet? We in here yet? We in the car? We have run it? All right. So, my, one of my grandmother's, great-grandmother's children was born with that cultivated, multi-generational, supernatural anointing in music and sound. And so, actually all of them were, but this one in particular um, would play piano starting one day. She was four years old 
and she heard one of, uh, on one of those really terrible old radios, she heard uh, one of Mozart's movements. And she heard it, she was four years old. She sat down, she started just kind of pecking out the, some of the various movements. And then next thing you know, she just started playing it almost, not perfectly, but very close to what she had just heard and she'd never had a piano lesson. She was technically what's called a savant, where you hear something and you can remember it perfectly or you read something once and you could say, so what's on page 122, halfway through the paragraph? And they go, oh, it says da 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 da. A genius. So she started playing piano for my grandmother at her camp meetings, where people were, you know, being moved by the spirit. You know, all the stuff. And she's just a little kid. Well, a rich white lady in Tryon, North Carolina, hears her playing, um, sees her, you know, you got to come see this black kid who can play Mozart. So she sees it and she's like, oh my goodness, you're a wonder. You're the seventh wonder of the world, <laughs> you know? So she starts hosting recitals in her home on the other side of the tracks in Tryon, North Carolina. Mrs. Masinovitz, this is an actual brochure um, on the right of it. That's my great aunt Eunice right there as a kid at that time. Miss Mastinovitz eventually uh, pays for her to move to New York City and train at uh, the Juilliard School of Music, which at the time they would not train her because of the stigma of being the world's greatest music institution, but training um, a person of color. Long story short, while she's there, she begins to uh, sing at this club to begin to make ends meet. While she's singing at that club, she starts writing some music. She records an album, but she was afraid if my preaching grandparents, if my preaching parents hear me singing the devil's music, then I'll be rejected by the whole family. So she decided to name herself after a French actress named Simone Signore. She picked the name Nina Simone, and she became, this was her first album called The Amazing Nina Simone. Now, eventually, um, she played, after that album, she was invited to play at the Newport Jazz Festival. And I want you to hear the rhythm of this song and just kind of correlate with everything I just said to you. Um, see if you, you notice anything. She has a tamarine. It's like a tent revival meeting. Come on now. Everybody say, Lies of Jane. 
It's call and response. You can pause it. Now, this is not a music course. I'm not lecturing at a music institution. I know it'd be fun if we were doing that. But I, I need you to understand something. She brought her experience in revival and in the church into the club. And people, what she eventually became known as the high priestess of soul, because performers began to mimic what she was doing. And they would say her concerts are like, like revival meetings, like a, a, an out-of-body experience, a spiritual encounter. She went on to, well, I'll, I'll just show you a little bit. Um, she was singing that kind of music until Megger Everts uh, was killed, the first NAACP field secretary. He was shot to death in 1963, and uh, both trials ended in hung juries. Then the blast at a church that same year in Birmingham, Alabama, which killed four little girls on a Sunday morning, injured 17. Those two events so deeply uh, scarred her emotionally and spiritually. She said this, after the murders of 1963, all the truths that I had denied to myself for so long rose up and slapped my face. It came as a rush of fury, hatred, and determination. In church language, the truth entered me, and I came, true, came through. In other words, there was such a sorrow accompanied with what she experienced that it fundamentally transformed her, and she was overwhelmed with rage. She began to deconstruct her faith. She began to deconstruct her reality of what the world is and who the world is, is for and, and about. And uh, she also began to deconstruct her, her image. Now at that time, that was how she was introduced to the world. You can see uh, her with um, James Baldwin and the author, uh, the playwright, or so, sorry, <laughs> Lorraine Hansberry. Um, and you can see how she's got this, this straight, you know, permed hair. And at the time, that was what you did if you were black. You, you, you assimilated to uh, the pop culture of the time. You have Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. He's got his hair slicked back to look technically as close to the majority culture as possible. Um, you have uh, Billie Holiday. You, you know, you've got um, trying to look like, uh, I believe that's Eva, Ava, I can't remember. Uh, what'd you say? Gardner. Yeah, Gardner, Ava Gardner. So black people were, were expected, if you were going to be successful in the culture, to look like majority culture. But she, after those, says, you know what? I'm taking a perm out. I'm wearing a fro. I'm wearing black. I'm going to be black. I'm going to introduce blackness. I'm going to enjoy being, you know, and suddenly she, she felt like she had found her calling, so to speak, to be a civil rights uh, voice. And so she became the first commercial music, female music artist that began to wear like African turbans and, and uh, 
she started doing campus tours. And here's a quick um, video of what she said about an artist's duty. I think what you're trying to ask is, uh, why am I so insistent upon giving out to them that blackness, that black power, that black pushing them to identify with uh, 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 black culture? I think that's what you're asking. It, it, I have no choice over it in the first place. To me, we are the most beautiful creatures in the whole world, black people. I mean, and I mean that in every, every sense, uh, outside and inside. And to me, we have a culture that uh, is surpassed by, 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 by no other civilization, but we don't know anything about it. So again, I think I've said this before in this same interview, I think uh, at some time before, my, my job is to somehow make them curious enough or persuade them by hook or crook to get more aware of themselves and where they came from and what they are into and what is already there and just to bring it out. This is what compels me to compel them. And I will do it by whatever means necessary. So she became a voice and she was an angry voice. Uh, she was angry at America. She experienced, started experiencing commercial success, was taken advantage of by record labels, started making millions, refused to pay taxes. Of course, you know, if you don't pay taxes, you get in trouble. And she said, okay. She wrote a song about it. She said, you give me second-class houses and second-class schools, but you want me to pay first-class taxes. You must think I'm a second-class fool. So she left America. She said, bye, America. I don't need you. She moved to Liberia, bought a home in Nigeria, in Ghana, Ghana, and then toured Europe, became a household name in Europe, then became a legend. She actually died in France, in the south of France. And I grew up, obviously, her nephew. Nobody in my hometown even knew who she was, except for the people who knew my family. So I never walked around and was like, hey, I'm Nina Simone's nephew. They're like, Nina who? It was like one of two reactions. It was either Nina Simone, and people were like, who? Or Nina Simone, they're like, oh my gosh! You know, because like, if you know, you know, if you don't. But the bottom line is, she was just recently, you know, after people die, they get inducted into the Hall of Fame. So she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. When she died, Elton John and Madonna and Michael Jackson sent flowers to our home. And, you know, it was this, it was this deal, right? But I say these things, not to qualify me before you, but to know that part of what she carried, the spirit that she carried, is actually the spirit of the era in which we live. There was, there was, a, there was a rage that compelled her. Um, and that rage eventually, undealt with um, over many decades, will eventually begin to manifest, not just at an individual level, but at a corporate level, which begins to explain what we've seen over the last eight to nine years in this nation, which is where I entered this conversation. I entered it a long time ago in many different ways. But Ferguson, Missouri, in 2014, an 18-year-old black man was walking down the middle of the street. An officer told him to get out of the street. Uh, he refused to get out of the street. An altercation happened between the two. 
Nobody really knows exactly what happened. We just know exactly how it ended, which ended with the young 18-year-old uh, Michael Brown dead in the street with several gunshots um, that had gone into his back. Within hours of that happening, Ferguson, Missouri exploded in civil unrest. And for the next 179 days, St. Louis experienced sustained civil unrest. This is what I call the flashpoint that became a tipping point. Again, Americans have very short memories. <laughs> so uh, at one point, Ferguson was a global household name. And now if you say Ferguson, people are like, oh yeah, what, what was it, what happened there? But if you, if you don't remember, prior to Ferguson, nobody was having racial conversation. I mean, if you were, you were having it at a university, you were having it in very specialized places or in fringe groups. But it was not like a mainstream conversation. Um, but Ferguson tipped the whole culture to now, all of a sudden, we're talking about police brutality, we're talking about racism, we're talking about all these different things. Um, and at that time, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of, polarization <laughs> as there is today. But um, these images came out of Ferguson at that time. Uh, and we saw the whole, the whole globe begin to rise up in protest as it relates to Ferguson, Missouri. And this is a peculiar thing because you're going, this is during the middle. You have to understand ISIS was running ramp, was rampaging the Middle East. The Syrian refugee crisis was happening. I mean, there was all sorts of trouble in the world. But somehow, out of everything that was going on, there were not protests happening in every major city, in every nation, not every nation, but in many nations uh, around the Syrian refugee crisis. But for some reason, one black guy gets killed in the middle of a, a small suburb of St. Louis in the middle of America. And now Tokyo is standing with Ferguson. London stands with Ferguson. I met on the streets of Ferguson people from Dubai, Cairo, Mongolia, Singapore, Australia, South Africa, Switzerland. I'm like, what are you doing here? Now, I got to Ferguson through a supernatural encounter. I was minding my own business in the mountains of North Carolina. I lived in Indianapolis, but my father was sick with the sickness that would eventually take him to heaven. And I knew something had happened, but I didn't know exactly what. I was just trying to keep dad alive. I was minding my own business at 8.18 p.m. on August 18th, 2014. And all of a sudden, I heard a voice, as the apostles would say, whether I was in the spirit. I, Paul talks, he says, I know a man who went to the third heavens once. He was talking about himself. I don't know if I heard it with my audible ear or with my spiritual. All I know is I heard a voice say, Zechariah 818. And I was like, what is that? 
I turn to Zechariah 8.18 and it essentially says the fast of the fourth, the fifth, the seventh, and the tenth months will become a feast of cheerful joy and gladness. All of a sudden I read that passage, the fast will become a feast. I've been fasting and praying for years for a spiritual awakening in America and particularly in America's black communities. I'd just done four years prior a three-day Esther fast, which is where you go with no food and no water for three days. And the whole premise was that there's a, a decree of death on the black community in America. Why, why, why do people who look like me populate prisons and graveyards the most? And so I, I went like Esther who went before the king when Haman had, had declared death to all the Jews. I said, me and some friends, we gathered for three days and we prayed for three days straight. God, would you break the, the, the decree of death off of America's black communities and would you send revival to America? That was four years to the day to that moment. I'd forgotten. We called the gathering 818 because we had it on August 18th, 2010. So on August 18th, 2014, nine days after Mike Brown had been called, I'm minding my business in, in Forest City, North Carolina, and all of a sudden at 8.18 p.m., Zechariah, 8.18. I'm shaken to my core. I look at it. He says, the fast will become a feast. Then I have an open vision, and in the vision, I was typing an email, and the email said, meet me in Ferguson. I was like, I, I went to my wife. I said, I just had a vision. I was typing an email, it said, meet me in Ferguson. What do you think it means? She says, I think it means meet me in Ferguson. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I gotta go to Ferguson. I gotta go to Ferguson, Missouri. She's like, I guess so. <laughs> so I, I, got, I was able to get there seven days later on August 25th, 2014, I land in Ferguson, Missouri, and it was the day Mike Brown was being buried. The whole globe was in Ferguson, CNN, ABC, MSNBC, Al Jazeera, BBC, everybody's there. Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, everybody. Y'all were even there. I'm just kidding. You just heard a, a Southern word, y'all. That means all of you, all of you guys were, were there too. All y'all, was it? Everybody. So I'm driving through. I don't know nobody. I don't know what's going on. I, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do there except be there. So I was going to go on a prayer walk. So this is, I went on a prayer walk. And this was one of the first things I saw. It said, wake up America. It was a burn building. And while I took that picture, there was a crowd of people protesting next to me and they were going, show me what democracy looks like. This is what democracy looks like. Show me what democracy looks like. But as I was taking this, it was like I heard the Holy Spirit change their words. Show me what awakening looks like. This is what awakening looks like. Show me. And I was like, this is what awake. I've been praying for spiritual awakening for years. I fasted and prayed. I didn't think, I wasn't praying for buildings to burn down. How is this what awakening looks like? And the Lord says, no one wants to be woken up. I was like, nobody wants to be woken up. You're right. How many of you, when you set your alarm, like growing up historically, <laughs> especially when you're a teenager, it's like, Oh, let me set my alarm. I love the sound. Oh, I just can't wait to hear my alarm when I 
I mean, raise your hand if you love to hear your alarm. <laughs> Nobody likes to be woken up. Nobody likes the sound of awakening. Because before, we love to read about the great awakenings. The first great awakening. The second great awakening. But before there is ever any great awakening, there must be a rude awakening. Before you're awakened to your need for Jesus in your own personal life, you have to be awakened to why you need Jesus. How many of you are like, man, I love it when God is showing me my sin. I just love, I really love it when somebody confronts me and tells me what a jerk I am and wakes me up to my jerkness. I mean, raise your hand if that's you. Nobody likes Rude awakenings, but God says, my, the, the, before the great awakening, America must experience a rude awakening. I am exposing this nation, says the Lord. And I was like, oh, so you're exposing white people. No, no, no. He says, no, 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 no. When I expose, I expose everybody. God began to, in Ferguson, start to pull back the layers of history and shake us. And then we went from Ferguson to Ohio, to New York, to, I mean, it just, it, it was like all of a sudden dominoes just blow back suddenly city after city, year after year. Crisis after crisis, polarizing. I mean, tension, building, building. And then suddenly 2020 hits, and all of a sudden, overnight, one video goes viral of George Floyd in Minneapolis and what Ferguson led out on seven years earlier, six years earlier, became the reality in Portland, in Seattle, in Minneapolis, in Chicago, in New York, in Dallas, in Tulsa, in Compton, in Oakland. And I mean, we can just go and go and go and go because God says there has been lava under the surface of this unhealed land for generations that I need to deal with. So the lava eventually comes out of the top of the volcano. But during that time, while I was there, I entered into a prayer meeting. I'm taking a lot longer to do this than I anticipated. But is this helping you just to frame? While I was there, I noticed that everybody in Ferguson had a camp. CNN had a camp. I mean, different ideolo ideological groups had camps. Nation of Islam, the new Communist Revolutionary Guard, Antifa, you name it. They had camps, tents. And I looked around, I was like, where's the, where's the camp of the Lord? I saw the Billy Graham uh, rapid response team. They had, I finally found them and I was like, oh, praise God. There's like somebody, there's a little bit of light here, but it was nuts. But there was a chaplaincy and they had a rapid response team. But largely, I went to a, I noticed this rally where a bunch of black clergy in collars showed up. 
And they were standing behind, I'm just going to name it, I don't care. They were standing behind Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. And they're looking like this is the moment for oil, right? Everybody's angry. Maybe the people who have the clerical callers are going to bring some kind of healing balm, healing message to their hearts and kind of tamp down at least a little bit. I mean, it's okay to be angry, but the Bible says in your anger, don't let it cause you to sin. So I'm like, okay, what's going to happen here? And Sharpton gets up and he says, you know, he says some stuff and how he's going to help and how we have to do this. And it's like a big rally. Yeah. And how white people this. Yeah. And then police this. And, ah, ah. and he says, in order to get this, in order to get the change that we need, change don't come cheap. No, it don't. You know, change ain't free. No, it's not free. So I need you to to get your phones out right now and put cash out. Da 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 to the National Action Network. This dude is trying to take up an offering and pass the plates in the streets. Do you know what, what St. Louis? This is St. Louis. This ain't, we ain't in, you know, I don't know, where, I don't know about your, your neck of the woods, but this ain't Louis. <laughs> Do you know what they did? It's a miracle Al Sharpton left, Saint, left Ferguson with his life because they ran him out and everybody that had a clerical collar on. And the, the street leaders then began to call out the black church. And they were saying, you guys are taking the tithes from our community. You're driving your Cadillacs and your Rolls Royces and your blah, 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 blah. And now you're trying to show up and lead our people on these streets. We don't need your peace. We don't need your gospel. We don't need your Jesus. F your Jesus. And the crowd starts yelling, F Jesus. This is eight years ago. When I saw that, I knew I had, I said, when I, I, I said, the enemy is riding in on the pain of this moment. And, and, and hijacking the very faith that brought my great-grandmama in. The God, the Jesus, the emancipator that delivered my, my, my grandmama, my grandpa, my auntie Nim, that delivered him. The enemy has now seized on this moment to try to disciple our people into a, into a different gospel. And that's where I said, if no other church is here, I got to be here. We put our house on the market in Indianapolis, and I moved to Ferguson. Um, but not before we were there for, for 90 days. I felt like the Lord said, build me a living room in the midst of this. So we got a tent. This is the tent that we erected. It fit like 300 people. We put a sound system under there, some chairs, and we got 75 churches in the St. Louis region to do 12 hours of worship under that tent for, 40, for uh, 21 days, 12 hours a day. We sent evangelism teams out three times a day just to talk to people, pray for people, listen to people. We had, um, in front of that was a former KFC building. Do y'all have Kentucky Fried Chicken up here? Okay, all right. It's not good though, I mean, it's like, 
But uh, we turned the KFC into a healing prayer room. We had prayer teams that were available around the clock and counseling teams for people to come in and just talk. And God started doing miracles. People began to be supernaturally healed. Salvation started happening. It was insane. And of course, CNN and all the news wanted to start running stories on us. But the Lord says, I want you to hide from the camera because there's people here trying to build a platform for themselves and you'll never disciple a city that you're prostituting. So one night we had, you can see a multi-ethnic worship team in the tent, they're worshiping. This was October 22nd, 2014. It was called a night of resistance against police brutality. We had intercessors stationed between the police and the activist and they were just worshiping in prayer Miracles happen. I, I don't have time to tell you the whole story because I have so much teaching to get to. This is supposed to be my 20-minute intro. <laughs> but you, are y'all enjoying the story, though? I mean, is this okay? I have so much teaching to get to. So, Lord, help me. <laughs> 50 people. 800 people in front of the, the, uh, the police station. I'm, I'm going to bullet point this. Protest, just because a protest is, uh, is nonviolent physically doesn't mean that a protest is nonviolent. It's only peaceful if it's full of peace. Peace is something on the inside. So, like, in Ferguson, the tone, the atmosphere was charged... Was the atmosphere ever charged in Seattle? You know what it feels like when the, when the atmosphere, it's like when you walk in, it's, if you're in a house with a gas leak, you can't see the fire, but it's already in the air. All it takes is just a little, a little spark. That's how the atmosphere of St. Louis was for 170 days. So we were there to bring the atmosphere of heaven Long story short, you can see these guys that had on masks and some of them had been rioting and, and looting during that time. They, ac- they accidentally ran into our tent. Like a crowd, a crowd of several hundred were trying to get away from us and they actually ran into our tent. And the moment they got into our tent, many of them involuntarily started weeping and getting on their knees and worshiping and surrendering their lives to Jesus. That night we saw 50 people come to Jesus in an instant. And I felt like the Lord says, before you see the great awakening, you have to see where God is in the midst of the rude awakening. Can you see where God is? Do you have the ability to see what God is doing? What, are, are, you, are you only seeing what NBC is saying? Are you only listening to Fox News? Do you have eyes to see what God is after in the times that we live in? These are two young men. That's me and the orange. Uh, two young teenagers just walked up to us. Hey, and they literally, they were like, hey, what's this? Well, it's a tent. We're worshiping Jesus. Oh, really? Jesus? Yeah. Man, I was just thinking about that. Uh, what, what can Jesus do for me? What can Jesus do for me? Oh, oh well. Uh, 
It was, just, it was that easy. Like, people were just walking up to me like, hey, uh, what's this? We're worshiping. Oh, uh, yeah? Oh. One guy walked up from, from the neighborhood and said, what's that smell? What y'all cooking? I said, oh, we, we're not cooking anything here. He's like, yes, you are. He said, I just walked a mile. I was sitting on my front porch, and I, I smelled the smell of spearmint. He said, I, spelled, I smelled spearmint. <laughs> spearmint. And he's like, he said, I just started walking towards the smell, and, and the closer I get to y'all, the stronger it was. So what y'all making? I ain't never smelled nothing like this. I said, we're worshiping and we're praying for people. While the stench of anger and rage and death was in the air, it says, in, in, it says that we are to God the aroma of Christ. It's the smell of death to some, but the smell of life to others. This brother smelled something pure and clean. He gave his life to Jesus and joined our ministry team. That was the birth of civil righteousness. What is civil righteousness? We're an international movement of holy activism pursuing reconciliation and restorative justice through spiritual, cultural, and economic renewal. Thanks for listening. To find out more about JT's organization called Civil Righteousness, visit their website at civilrighteousness.org. And to find out more information about our church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church.